Turn with me once again to the, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. We're in chapter 11 uh, this morning. I'm trying to get this right here. Let me see if I get that. All right, there we go. Uh, as you know, we're calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah because God, through this prophet, this mouthpiece of God, has more to say, more to show us about the gospel. His name is Jesus than any Old Testament prophet. And this morning's text, as we look at chapter 11, uh, is certainly one of the many examples of that truth. And one of the things that we've been seeing over and over in this book as we're studying it together is this reoccurring theme of hope Mercy and grace in the midst of sin and judgment. And this hope, this grace, this mercy is rooted in the gospel. The promise that God will forgive sins, that God will reconcile with us, that through the Lord Jesus Christ we can be reconciled to God, and that God, we will see today, will establish an eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God where there is shalom, there is perfect peace, spiritual um psychological, physical, emotional peace with God. In Genesis 1, you see this original created world that God made untainted by sin. There was perfect shalom, this peace, this innocence, this beauty where men and women walked intimately with God. And then in chapter 3, sin enters the world and fractures the shalom, the, the kingdom. There is, there is sin. The world is marred by sin. Both creation itself and mankind. Chapter 3, we see that clearly. And now we don't have that intimate relationship where everything we do is the worship of God. Whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do. We now are, are men and women who are seeking after other things. Idolatry has entered the world. Brokenness has entered the world. Worshiping Idols and other things to find significance and, and security and belonging are, are, are sought after. There's an emptiness, there's a hollowness in our lives. But then God, even in the midst of chaos and brokenness in Genesis 3, speaks of hope and grace. Talks about a son who will come, the seed of a woman, who will crush with a fatal blow. Satan, the enemy, chapter 3, verse 15. We see the proto-evangelon, the first gospel. And then as we continue in the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham from a, from a pagan nation and makes a covenant with him and calls him to go to another land and makes a promise with him. And he says to Abraham, from your descendant, I'm going to gather a people. And through this people, I'm going to bless the entire world. The actual redeemer will come from your body who will bless everyone. The kingdom of God is continued in this line through Abraham. God's going to bless the earth. You see this Change, you see this promise, the kingdom of God will come. And Moses is raised, as you know, raised up by God. And he says to Moses, God tells Moses, go, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, to, to, to let the Jewish people be freed from Egypt so they may worship and serve the living God. It's, it's kingdom time again. Let's gather the people to worship and have relationship with God. I'm moving you out of this pagan land of Egypt, and I'll move you into the, the land of flowing with milk and honey. But we know the story. As the people of God enter into the promised land, things aren't all that great. There's still sin. There's still sin in the land. And then they cry out, if you remember, for a king. Settled in the land, but you know what? God is not good enough to be their king. And they want a king like all the other nations, they say. And Saul becomes the king. God tries to tell him, things won't go good with this guy. We don't want him to hear it. We want a king. And we see this, this gathering of God's people, and, but we see it's never really been perfect. Saul, we know, completely crashed and burned. David, although he's a man after God's own heart, we know he has sin and has issues and problems. We saw that when we studied First and Second Samuel. But in the midst of the broken, fractured world, sinful world, God again speaks hope and grace to his king, to the king David. Second Samuel, very important, chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. God speaks again of grace and mercy in the midst of brokenness and sin. And he tells David that your days are going to be done. You will lie down with your fathers. You will die. But I will raise up from your offspring 
Someone will come from your seed, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Someone will be raised in David's body that will, will be king forever. And all this points to uh, the, the kingdom of God imagery for the Jewish people. They, they were awaiting with great expectation of this coming kingdom. And with all this, to Ab- first to Genesis, to Adam, then to Abraham, then to, to um, David, all this promises, then all the prophecies and all the prophets like Isaiah speak about a day that was coming. A day, a glorious day, when the reign and the rule of God in all his power and glory will come. He will take everything that's been broken and fractured by sin and rebellion and make it shalom again. It was the great hope of the Jewish people. It is is the great expectation of the Jewish people. I want you to feel that this morning. All the signs, all the prophecies, all the promises... Everything pointing to the day, even the festivals of the coming kingdom of God, where he will reign and he will rule with perfect peace and justice. The fractured Genesis 3 will be restored. In fact, Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, last chapter of Malachi, speaks about the kingdom of God, that great and glorious day of the Lord. So with that, turn to Isaiah 11. Where we see this reign and rule of this king in this kingdom. That's what chapter 11 is all about. I've broken up this text in four parts. Um, so if you're following with us, um, it's broken up in these four different headings. The first part, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3a, um, is the provision of this king's reign. Verses 3b through 5 is the perfect justice of his reign. 6 through 10, the peace characterizing his reign, and finally the promised remnant of his reign. So that's our outline this morning. I'll go through each one with you. So first, let's look at the provision for his reign. I will read the text as we get to each part of the um, outline. So chapter 11, verses 1 through 3a, we see the provision for his reign. Hear the word of the Lord, chapter 1, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3a. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, if you remember its context from last week, chapter 10. Remember, that was the judgment against the Assyrian nation. Assyria, remember, was growing in its power, and God used the Assyrian nation to the northeast of, of Judah and Israel. He used the Assyrian nation to discipline and to chastise his kids. The northern kingdom called Israel, Ephraim, and the southern kingdom called Judah. God used the Assyrian nation to chastise them. The Assyrian nation will then, will, ha, will, we'll see that as we move forward, eventually will destroy and conquer Israel, Ephraim, a.k.a. also known as Ephraim. Assyrians will, will, will march into Samaria and destroy the northern kingdom and deport and destroy its people and its property. They will march onto Judah, which is south of Israel. But they will stop there. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. There'll be a day when the Assyrian nation will come down south from the north, come down south, destroy Samaria and Israel, and then will come into Judah. But verse 32 of chapter 10, uh, excuse me, yeah. This very day will halt at Nob, that's talking about the Assyrian nation. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. They will go but so far. And God spares Judah, at least for a time being. Two things to keep in mind as we look at this prophecy, as we look at chapter 11. Judah, which we just spoke about, and Benjamin were the two southern tribes, which we've talked about that before. Judah and Benjamin are the only two out of the 12 tribes of Israel when they split after Solomon died that was loyal and faithful to the Davidic promise. 
to the Davidic dynasty. The promise of David, given to David, that an offspring will come and will reign and rule forever. The other two kingdoms, the other 12 kingdoms, excuse me, the other 10 kingdoms, I apologize, to the north is called Israel. The two, remember, to the south is Judah and Israel. So remember that as we move forward. The second thing I want us to see is this chapter 11, verse 1, is that the this first verse tells us that this king, this eternal king, will come from the shoot out of the stump of Jesse, the family line of someone named Jesse. Okay, it will come from the stump. Now think, think about this for a second. We just talked about Assyria being destroyed. Look at chapter 10. And we see the destruction of Assyria, chapter 10, verse 34. God will cut down the thickest of the forest with an axe. He's talking about now Assyria's judgment. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Lebanon is an idiom, idiom for Assyria. So God's going to destroy the forest, the axe, but Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That's chapter 10, verse 34. Now we get to chapter 11, verse 1, we see something else going on. There's a shoot that's coming out. So God will, will put Assyria down, but the eternal king will come from a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. The prophet just has shown the Assyrian swift and, and sudden destruction, the, the forest of her pride. It's nothing left but a field of stumps. In chapter 6, verse 13, God used that same language as fallen trees leaving stumps for his own people. When judgment comes, the trees will fall. But in chapter 6, verse 13, when he talks about his own people, at the very end, if you remember chapter 6, verse 13, it ends with this statement. The holy seed is its stump. There's that stump language again. So in other words, there's going to be a destruction, but God will, will preserve this, this holy remnant from this stump. A, a little shoot, this holy seed, will eventually sprout up. So although Israel and Judah, God talks about the falling of trees and the judgment that falls upon them. He does the same thing for Assyria, but there's a difference. When God pronounced judgment and judges Assyria, nothing rises from the heap, from the stumps that have been, trees that have been fall down, but not true with Israel. From one of her stumps, the smallest shoot will burst forth. From that helpless shoot comes the restoration of the, na- of the nations and all the wars will end. And the establishment of what everybody wants, what everybody sees in their mind but yet has been experienced, they will experience a genuine righteousness, security and peace. The kingdom of God, shalom, will come from this branch, from this root. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he talks about the holy seed, we, we talked about it a few weeks ago, he had in mind, I believe, at least Genesis 3.15 to some degree, that there's, to some degree there's, a, there's a, 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 the, the holy seed, the, the seed of the woman who will come and crush Satan. We know that to be Jesus. Gen, uh, Galatians tells us that. Here he always talking about this stump. He's talking about the promise that was given to David. Kind of combining the two. But here he's talking about David. He's talking about the promise, the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 17. Because this ruler comes from the house of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse's David's father. Jesse is King David's dad who lived in Bethlehem. And if you know the story in 2 Samuel, you know that, you know that Samuel the prophet was, was, was raised up by God and sent to Jesse's house. To anoint the next king. And you know the story. Samuel looks at all the boys and goes through each one of them. And God's like, nope, neither one. They're all, they're all not the one I've anointed. And then Samuel's like, you got any more kids? Like, you have anyone left? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, I forgot about the youngest guy. A little kind of afterthought. He's out back. Well, can you go get him? Sure. David comes in. He's anointed king. The, the contrast between the lofty and proud trees of Assyria and the lowly stump of Jesse cannot be more obvious. Once again, we see our God in the business of demonstrating his glory and his power through raising up people of humble means. The shoot will branch off. It will not be cut off. It will not be completely exterminated. The Davidic dynasty, the promise 
will no longer continue as a fallen tree, but there will be hope. There, there is prospering. The roots will raise up. There will be a, a tree will come in God's own time. And having reached the height of its power, a serious cut down. David's house is some degree in their rebellion has been cut down. And yet God in his grace and in hope and in mercy keeps his promises. This root. Stump of Jesse. Will bear fruit. Aren't you glad this morning. That God takes the humble. And uses us for his glory. Can you imagine if God only chose the elite of this world. The superstars of our day. First Corinthians says God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's through humility. It's through humility. Isn't that the gospel? Through humility, Jesus comes. Verse 2 tells us that the presence of God's spirit will distinguish this king, this, this kingdom. It said, look what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Oswald in his commentary says this. The promised shoot from the stump of Jesse will be characterized by the very breath of God about him. Everything about his leadership will testify to a supernatural endowment for his calling. It is this which is critical unless the Messiah is truly endued with the Spirit of God, the results of his rule will be no different than that of Ahaz, end quote. This root of Jesse will be perfectly and divinely endowed by the Spirit. Everything he needs to fulfill his kingly task, supernatural work will be given to this king, this Davidic king. The fact that the Spirit will rest upon him speaks of the, 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 the permanence and the ability of the Messiah. He's not going to act independently of, of his divine assistance, but will constantly and continually draw upon it. He'll be invigorated by the Spirit. As a result, look what it says. His reign will be characterized by wisdom and understanding. He'll have the mental abilities of wisdom and understanding as well as the moral ability to make choices, right choices, rendering right decisions at the right time. You're not going to be like Ahaz making poor choices, bad decisions, short-sighted through fear, political pressure. We saw that. No, not him. The spirit of counsel and might as well. He will give counsel. He'll, he'll have plans and powers to carry them out. So not only will he make right decisions, rendering uh, uh, by the right means, rendering right decisions, but he will have the counsel and the ability, the mighty. Look at this, the counsel and might to carry out those wise decisions. The knowledge and fear of the Lord. Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. God will provide this, this Davidic king with experiential knowledge that will be characterized by the fear of the Lord. There's an intimacy of reverence and awe between this Davidic king and the Lord. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the New Testament, the New Covenant, opens up with, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And as we look at his life in Matthew, we don't get far, right? To chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened up. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, the Son in whom I love intimacy, wisdom, 
For he says, with whom I am well pleased. The sevenfold spirit represents the, the completion and the perfection of Christ's anointing. The word anointing means Christ. His anointing. We see it, we saw it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. The, the spirit's fullness resting on the Lord. Luke chapter 4. Jesus walks into a synagogue. Some smart person hands him a, a scroll. I mean, God comes walking in this church. I'm sitting down. I have nothing to say to you, right? They hand Jesus a scroll. Jesus opens up the scroll, turns to Isaiah 61, and looks at the crowd and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, handed it to the synagogue leader, sat down and said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has the spirit of wisdom and understanding for true and great and better leadership. The spirit of counsel and might for conquering his enemies. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. Unlike every single, I'll say it again, every single human leader. (laughs) No matter how great you think they may be or may not be. (laughs) Jesus is the only perfect qualified ruler of the world. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The word delight is an interesting word. It it means to smell with pleasure as if the the incense is coming up to the nostrils of God. And what that means is uh, Christ's love for his father will will direct his life. He'll make decisions that his judicial affairs will be from a, a, a divine, reverent love perspective. That's the reigning ruler of Jesus. No money, no status. No political influence will derail the Davidic ruler and his perspective on justice. He's the great anticipated king. The Messiah is both promised and announced as depicted as a ruler who rules in righteous reverence. And this is directly in contrast to what everything we've been seeing about the nations. The the fearful and rebellious Judah, the fearful and rebellious Israel, the arrogant and oppressive emperor Empire, empire of Assyria. The perfect provision as the Spirit of God leads him. Look at second. Whoop, I went too far. If you go back one for me. Number two, the perfect justice of his reign. Verses 3a. Follow along. 3a. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, family, remember, I've mentioned this before, maybe not in a while, but the word kingdom, both in the Old Testament and Hebrew and the New Testament Greek, the word kingdom, first and primarily and first and foremost, has to do with the king, the reign and the rule of the king, the king himself, the reign itself, the authority, the power of the king itself. And secondarily, when we talk about kingdom, we talk about the actual realm in which he uh, is is reigning over and the people of which he is ruling over the rule itself and here we see this characteristic of this king we've been seeing his righteousness unlike the best human judges he will judge not using natural abilities if you notice that but what he eyes sees not he's not using the senses maybe to see or to hear i mean trying to make proper judgment, trying to figure out what's right or wrong, uh, fair ruling in, in ways that he could try to attempt, as we try to do and judges try to do, uh, to read the heart, the motive. What's the motive behind this crime? Not this king. He's going to go deeper than that. He will, he will pierce beneath the appearances to the underlying reality. He, he, he will see the motives Maybe the deception or the false information by the guilty. He will know the truth. 
It won't be based on outward appearance, what he could see, or even uh, false claims of what he hears. It'll be based on the actual reality and true nature of the heart. This is the kind of justice and righteousness that we already saw attributed to the eternal king in chapter 7. Uh, excuse me, chapter 9, one who will sit on the throne of David. Chapter 9, verse 7, the throne of David and over his kingdom, your throne will establish, uphold it, and this king will what? Will do it with justice and with righteousness from this time forever more. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. He's not going to take bribes. We saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 5. The king is not going to be swayed by some powerful, greedy influence. He, he, he will give due diligence, look what it says, and give attention to the rights of the poor, the helpless and the weak. And he will decide the equity of the meek of the earth, the humble, the afflicted. Those who have no resources, who can't help themselves, he will influence and he will be there and he will help obtain justice for them. Here's the king whose hands we are safe. doesn't mean that God won't care for the rich or the material people. I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying. I, 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 think, I think part of this analogy, he's talking about those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize, I mean, he's been dealing with hard-headed, rebellious, proud, arrogant people in his own land. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 6, people of unclean lips. We've seen that in, in, in Assyria and all the nations in their arrogance. I think what he's saying is there, there are those who will be humble. There are those who will be poor in spirit. There are those who will be broken before him. And he will judge them with righteousness. There is an amount of money that can change his decree. Honor will be upheld. Kings, if, if you've been tracking with us, the kings in Israel and Judah haven't been doing that. They've been robbing the poor. They, they've been hurting the fatherless. Jesus says, no, not, not in my kingdom. And look at verse 4b. It says, and he will strike the earth. That's the idiom for wicked. With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. There's this moral force. There's this reality of power possessed by this leader. And, and he owes no allegiance to any pressure group, special interest groups. What comes forth from his mouth is the word, the truth. And that word is judging, that word is striking. He will say all that needs to be said and given in any circumstance, his truth will do its work. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes back and returns on a white horse. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's our Jesus. As the word of God, his word proves all that is necessary. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword who will strike the nations. God the Father, God, the Son, as the agent will accomplish judgment and, and deliverance for his people. Because God's word that created ex nihilo, out of nothing, the universe, the cosmos. So it will be that he will strike down the nations. Verse 5 ends this wonderful description of the king ready to do his work. The belt or the, sh- uh, uh, the sash. It was a belt of cloth. They would lift up their robes in preparation to, for activity. So he says the Messiah, the king here, his outward appearance is consistent with the inward reality of his, of his royal conduct. He will do what needs to be done. Mortier in his commentary says, belt symbolizes ability and readiness for action. His righteousness is whatever matches and expresses what the Lord thinks is right. Faithfulness is what is unshakably unshakably committed to what the Lord directs. Respectively, they are spiritual integrity and loyalty, end quote. Unlike human leaders, this king will come. Not, with, not, not prompted by a, a, a human ego, but with righteousness and faithfulness. So I guess we could ask the question, that's our Jesus Can you trust him today? Is he worthy of your trust today?
If we're unwilling to trust him, we're saying that there is someone else more worthy of our trust. That maybe someone will come someday with this kind of perfect righteousness. It's not going to happen. Now, one of the things that helps keep me sane these days is a lot of things. But one of the things that helps keep me sane, I hope it helps you too, is the anticipation of the perfect reign and rule of Christ. If we're honest, we're all yearning, I think as God given to us, part of the Imago Dei, we're all yearning for a healed creation, a healed humanity, a place where justice will be done perfectly. A place where righteousness will reign. Maybe that's why we often get caught up Believing new promises that are given to us by new people, governments, policies. It'll fix everything. Maybe it's because we know that it needs to be fixed. And we know that no one has ever done it yet. And we're waiting, anticipating the perfect justice of Christ. Number three, the peace characterizing his reign. Look at verses 6 through 10. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt. Or destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. Verse 10. In that day. The root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. The effect of this reign. And this rule of this king. Will be a universal peace. Uh, and I, an ideal described I believe recalling the, the shalom, the paradise of Eden, the kingdom of God in Genesis 1 and 2. It is a picture of creation put back into shalom. God will be known. His rule will be experienced. Security and safety will be the result of this king's rule. The glorious kingdom ruled by a glorious king. In sharp contrast to the kingdoms of that world in that day, in the sharp contrast of our, all earthly kingdoms, enmity will disappear. Not only among men, but even among beasts. Between men and beasts, all will live, according to this text, in harmony with one another. The shepherd will let the lie, the shep, the leopard will let the young goat lie down beside it. The lion, between the calf and the fattened calf, not destroying neither one nor longing for it. Cows and bears graze together while the young one lies side by side in the pasture. Look what it says. The lion, no longer thirsty for blood, but like the ox, content with straw. The nursing child by the hole of a cobra. And the child just weaned, stretches his hand boldly and fiercely and takes hold of the adder's den, a poisonous snake. The Messiah's reign. Fears are gone. Insecurity, danger, and evil will be removed. Not only for the individual, but of all and for all of creation. Did you know Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that creation itself waits eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you know back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29, I skipped over this, I I looked it up again, I'm like, really? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, this the unfractured kingdom, before sin entered the world, it says that every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Originally, every beast was eating green food. All changed when Adam sinned. Isaiah is anticipating a day when that change in Genesis 3 will be reversed. Now, just as before, <laughs> you all know, some of you know what's coming. What messianic kingdom are we talking about? 
Again, Google John Piper eschatology, a night of eschatology, and you'll see the different views. You know how I lean. If not, you will today. The kingdom of God is expressed in Scripture, I believe, as two high mountains. The first mountain is the millennial reign of Christ. The literal, physical reign on earth. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. The millennial reign of Christ, then the second mountain, is that eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth. Premillennial approach to Scripture. Understanding of Scripture. My amillennial friends, there are some here, some are giggling, I hear you. My brothers and sisters in Christ, read this text and say, well, it's either in the eternal state, although there's children there, or it's figuratively, they like to go there, that's okay, that it has to do with the peace of Christ who comes to reign and rule and, and to, to forgive sins and, and just kind of shows the, the peace that he brought with the cross. And others would say, no, it's actually a millennial reign. It's not physically present on earth. There's a millennial reign going on somewhere in heaven. And that's their view. And that's fine. I believe it's a literal, physical reign of Christ on earth that this will happen. One thing, though, we both can agree on, my brothers and sisters, my all-mill brothers and sisters, Christ's future kingdom is a kingdom of unspeakable tranquility and beauty. It will happen. It will happen. And this consummation of that kingdom is captured in verse 9. And what, it's interesting, verse 9, the first part of verse 9 kind of summarizes verses 6 through 9, 6 through 8, and the second part explains it. So it says, verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, that's summarizing the peace that's going to take place, I believe, in the millennial reign of Christ. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the explanation. And the point is that the Christ, the Messiah, the King, Mission goes beyond just taking away guilt and and shame and forgiving sin. There's an everlasting and renewal and restoration of the fallen world. Brought back to that shalom. And Isaiah may not be telling us when, I get that, but he's telling us who. And that's where we have to rally around. And that's what needs to get our hearts inflamed and on fire for the return of Christ. Billy Graham said this, One of the best ways to get rid of discouragement is to remember that Christ is coming again. The most thrilling, glorious truth in all the world is the second coming of Jesus Christ, end quote. That's the good news that we ought to embrace today. His kingdom, his kingdom is the only final and complete kingdom. God's kingdom come is the only answer to poverty, is the only answer to hunger, is the only answer to injustice, hatred, violence, racism, whatever else we have caused upon this world. It will end. Why? Look at the second part of verse 9. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of God. Knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember the seraphim in chapter 6? The whole earth, holy, holy is the Lord. What? The whole earth is full of his glory. Men will know God. God will be present. God will reign and rule. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse is who? Jesus. Will stand as a signal. For the nations who inquire, he'll be a, a resting place. It shall be what? Glorious. The banner around whom the remnant will gather. The root is no longer under the ground. It's not invisible. It is standing firm. It's a signal to the people. We saw a signal in chapter 5 when God said, I'm going to signal the foreign nations to come to destroy my people. Now he says there's a signal for the king of kings, for the nations to come, to draw to him, to, to hear from him, to ask questions of him, to adore him. It'll be a place of resting. He will bestow glory. Look what it says. The king has come. The kingdom is established. The flag is flying. Jesus said what? When I am lifted up from the earth, what will he do? Would draw all people to himself. The provision for his reign, the perfect justice of his reign, the peace that characterized reign. And finally, number four. If you could put that up, my my iPad's off. Um, Number four, the promised remnant. Verse 11 through 16. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. 
that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastline, coastlands of the sea. He will raise signal for the nation and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim, that's Israel, shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. And will wave his hand over the river with scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. He will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. We see in this verse, in these verses, this second exodus, that people are returning to the land. We saw God's hand in chapter 1 as chastising his people. Now we see his hand coming to deliver his people as he did in Egypt. Only a remnant though, notice that. Only a remnant will be left over after the Assyrian army comes in and does the work that God has sent them to do. In chapter 11, excuse me, in verse 11, Isaiah uses a list of nations. You see that? Representing really, if you look at the way those nations have been, are, are, are situated, you'll see it's really just surrounding them. You have from the south, Egypt and Cush. From the north, Assyria and Hamath. From the east, Elam and Babylon. From the west, the islands of the sea. And what, what, what I think Isaiah is showing us is this, this completeness of armies that God is able to, to take from everywhere and bring them home. Verse 12 speaks of the ingathering. He will raise, he will assemble the banished of Israel, gather the dispersed. And in a limited sense, I think when you read this, when you read this, there is a sense in which Israel, uh, Assyria is going to be destroyed by, uh, Israel is going to be destroyed by Assyria. Babylon is going to come and destroy Judah and they're going to be dispersed. We know that. We, we're going to see that later on in Isaiah. There's going to be an exile. There's going to be a time when the people are, are, are sent into captivity. But the ultimate fulfillment will be at the coming of Christ, the Messiah, as he gathers his people. Chapter 24 of Matthew. Listen to what it says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that's Jesus. And then all the tribes, that's Israel, of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. Let me tell you, family, the kings can claim sovereignty, leaders can claim sovereignty, but only God can call, and God will gather. And notice verse 13 has been a a century-long fight with Israel, Ephraim, and Judah. That will come to an end. Not only will it come to an end, but look what will happen. They'll join together. They're going to join together and defeat the enemies. Verse 14, they will swoop down on his shoulders. Family, that is a picture of God's people Together in unity around a cause. What a, what a great picture of the victory of Jesus and us gathering around him for the mission of God. Declaring and demonstrating the gospel, not by our own strength, but by his strength. As we participate together in the gospel demonstrating and declaring the person and the work of Jesus. His, his death on the cross. His blood that was shed for forgiveness of sin. His reconciling work that reconciles us sinners to a holy God. And as verse 15 and 16 really conclude, he's talking about the Exodus. The Sea of Egypt, Red Sea, the uh, Euphrates, uh, with the river he's talking about. These two rivers were, were problematic for God's people. And yet Isaiah says, you know what? God will remove all obstacles to fulfill his promises. His promises to them and his promises to you. I want that to be an encouragement for us today. I want that to be an encouragement for us today, that God will do what God needs to do. He will keep his promises to us. He'll remove obstacles if need be. 
God will lead his people. God will bring them home safely. God will, through hindrances and difficulties, bring them into the promised land. He'll send a a wind, it says, as well. And the result will be the people of God will return. You know, chapter 11 teaches us, especially this end here, God will lead them home. God will bring the people back. And that's true for everyone in this room who has trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. The final salvation, the elect, the faithful people of God that God will be faithful to, I should say. And he will bring us home safely. He will bring you home. And this recognition of and dependence upon God is is the hope for us. We cannot and will not do it. We see this in chapter 11. And what we see also developing in chapter 11 is this. If you've been tracking with us throughout all these chapters, you'll see that the son in chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us. We see in chapter 9, he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. We see in chapter 9, verse 7, he's the prince of peace. He brings justice and peace to the kingdom. We'll see all that. What used to be was just a a son is now a sprout, and now the kingdom has come. All this is clear. God will do it. God will be victorious. God will be victorious. God will keep his promises. As the band comes up, you get ready for communion. I want to encourage you with, with these words. These prophecies of old are showing us that the world will pass away and the king of kings will come and establish a new one. It was given to the people of God then, it's given to the people of God now for our confidence to be and our trust to be in his eternal plan, his purposes for his people, promising that one day it will be reality. Therefore, as we face problems today, family, as we face difficulties today, let's evaluate that truth or or, or this truth in light of God's eternal plans. God will be victorious. The Messiah will reign. Nothing will stop him. God will keep his promises. And family, we talked about this before, and I'll end here. The kingdom of God is both already and not yet, right? It's that Polaroid, if you're my age, that you, you take the snap, the picture and it's black and it's dark and as you just wave it as the air gets through it, the picture starts to show. It's dim but then you see it more clearly. The good news of the kingdom family is the good news of the gospel is the good news that Jesus is the king and he has already come. The true king and the true kingdom has come. He has come in the first time to make everything and to begin to make everything right. That fairy fairy tale story of the the rider coming in and and kissing the prince and and waking her up and everything that was wrong is now right to a glorious ending is the truth of the kingdom of God. It has begun. It is already because Christ has come. It's not yet because when he comes back, he will remove sin. He will fix everything broken. He will get rid of injustice, fear, suffering. Tears will be gone. Joy will be permanent. The human race will be unified. Poverty and injustice will be over. Death and disease will be no more. And Christ's kingship is both the present reality as he exercised authority, seated at the right hand of the Father, and a future hope when he comes and puts down everything against his Rain. We live in that tension. The coming kingdom and the kingdom that is present because King Jesus has come. Mark chapter 14. Everybody grab your communion cup. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is what Jesus said. This is for you this morning. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel and said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. The king has come. And that's what the communion cup is all about. It's the gospel. The wafer on top is represents the broken body of Jesus who lived that perfect life we couldn't live and was crucified on your behalf, was nailed to a Roman cross, paid the debt for your sins, And was broken for each and every one of you. The cup represents the blood that was shed from way back in the Old Testament. Blood had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. They all pointed to Jesus. 
He's the Messiah. He's the king. He came the first time to die for sins, to rise from the dead. And by grace alone, you can receive the gift of eternal life. And faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never repented of your sins, I invite you to today. It means to turn from your sins, stop being your own Lord, save your to justify yourself, and turn to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need you. You've died for me. You rose for men. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. You're the coming king. Have you done that this morning? I hope you have. And if you have, then you can partake with us. The bread is the body that was broken. The cup is the blood that was shed. Jesus took the bread on the night in which he was betrayed and broke it. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Then he took the cup. He said, it's the cup of the new covenant. My blood from the new covenant. So let's just spend some moment in prayer, and then we'll lead through taking communion together. Father, it is so easy to look around and see all the injustices, the anger, the hatred, and point. We acknowledge it's a little bit more difficult to look in and see our own sin, injustices, hatred. All have sinned and fall short of your glory. And yet, God, you didn't leave us in our sin. You didn't leave us on the road to destruction, but you sent your son the glorious King of Kings, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the reigning ruling King to come the first time to humble himself and die on a cross for the benefit, for our benefit and for the penalty of sin. We acknowledge our sin, but we also acknowledge the cross, the work of Jesus on our behalf who died a brutal death, who shed his blood, who died and rose again and is coming again. Help us, Lord, to celebrate that truth, to celebrate your goodness, to celebrate the work of Jesus, to rejoice in our salvation and rejoice in the hope of our coming King, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.